What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Chapter 11 of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 11. Iphigenia. When Eleanor laid her head on her pillow that night, her mind was anxiously intent on some plan by which she might extricate her father from his misery, and in her warm-hearted enthusiasm self-sacrifice was decided on as the means to be adopted. Was not so good an Agamemnon worthy of an Iphigenia? She would herself personally implore John Bold to desist from his undertaking. She would explain to him her father's sorrows, the cruel misery of his position. She would tell him how her father would die if he were thus dragged before the public and exposed to such unmerited ignominy. She would appeal to his old friendship, to his generosity, to his manliness, to his mercy. If need were, she would kneel to him for the favor she would ask. But before she did this, the idea of love must be banished. There must be no bargain in the matter. To his mercy, to his generosity, she could appeal, but as a pure maiden, hitherto even unsolicited, she could not appeal to his love. Nor under such circumstances could she allow him to do so. Of course, when so provoked, he would declare his passion. That was to be expected. There had been enough between them to make such a fact sure, but it was equally certain that he must be rejected. She could not be understood as saying, Make my father free, and I'm the reward. There would be no sacrifice in that. Not so had Jephthah's daughter saved her father. Not so could she show to that kindest, dearest of parents how much she was able to bear for his good. No, to one resolve must her whole soul be bound, and so resolving, she felt that she could make her great request to Bold with as much self-assured confidence as she could have done to his grandfather. And now I own I have fears for my heroine, not as to the upshot of her mission, not in the least as to that, as to the full success of her generous scheme and the ultimate result of such a project, no one conversant with human nature and novels can have a doubt. But as to the amount of sympathy she may receive from those of her own sex. Girls below twenty and old ladies above sixty will do her justice, for in the female heart the soft springs of sweet romance reopen after many years, and again gush out with waters pure as in earlier days, and greatly refresh the path that leads downwards to the grave. But I fear that the majority of those between these two eras will not approve of Eleanor's plan. I fear that unmarried ladies of thirty-five will declare that there can be no probability of so absurd a project being carried through, that young women on their knees before their lovers are sure to get kissed, and that they would not put themselves in such a position did they not expect it, that Eleanor is going to Bold only because circumstances prevent Bold from coming to her, that she is certainly a little fool, or a little schemer, but that in all probability she is thinking a good deal more about herself than her father. Dear ladies, you are right as to your appreciation of the circumstances, but very wrong as to Miss Harding's character. Miss Harding was much younger than you are, and could not therefore know, as you may do, to what dangers such an encounter might expose her. 
she may get kissed i think it very probable that she will but i give my solemn word and positive assurance that the remotest idea of such a catastrophe never occurred to her as she made the great resolve now alluded to and then she slept and then she rose refreshed and met her father with her kindest embrace and most loving smiles and on the whole their breakfast was by no means so triste as had been their dinner the day before and then making some excuse to her father for so soon leaving him she started on the commencement of her operations she knew that john bold was in london and that therefore the scene itself could not be enacted to-day but she also knew that he was soon to be home probably on the next day and it was necessary that some little plan for meeting him should be concerted with his sister mary when she got up to the house she went as usual into the morning sitting-room and was startled by perceiving by a stick a great coat and sundry parcels which were lying about that bold must have already returned john has come back so suddenly said mary coming into the room he's been travelling all night then i'll come up again some other time said eleanor about to beat a retreat in her sudden dismay he's out now and will be for the next two hours said the other he's with that horrid finney he only came to see him and he returns by the mail train to-night returns by the mail train to-night thought eleanor to herself as she strove to screw up her courage away again to-night then it must be now or never and she again sat down having risen to go she wished the ordeal could have been postponed she had fully made up her mind to do the deed but she had not made up her mind to do it this very day and now she felt ill at ease astray and in difficulty mary she began i must see your brother before he goes back oh yes of course said the other i know he'll be delighted to see you and she tried to treat it as a matter of course but she was not the less surprised for mary and eleanor had daily talked over john bold and his conduct and his love and mary would insist on calling eleanor her sister and would scold her for not calling bold by his christian name and eleanor would half confess her love but like a modest maiden would protest against such familiarities even with the name of her lover and so they talked hour after hour and mary bold who was much the elder looked forward with happy confidence to the day when eleanor would not be ashamed to call her her sister she was however fully sure that just at present eleanor would be much more likely to avoid her brother than to seek him mary i must see your brother now to-day and beg from him a great favour and she spoke with a solemn air not at all usual to her and then she went on and opened to her friend all her plan her well-weighed scheme for saving her father from a sorrow which would she said if it lasted bring him to his grave but mary she continued you must now you know cease any joking about me and mr bold you must now say no more about that i am not ashamed to beg this favour from your brother but when i have done so there can never be anything further between us and she said this with a staid and solemn air quite worthy of jephthah's daughter or of iphigenia either it was quite clear that mary bold did not follow the argument that eleanor harding should appeal on behalf of her father to bold's better feelings seemed to mary quite natural it seemed quite natural that he should relent overcome by such filial tears and by so much beauty 
but to her thinking it was at any rate equally natural that having relented john should put his arm around his mistress's waist and say now having settled that let us be man and wife and all will end happily why his good nature should not be rewarded when such reward would operate to the disadvantage of none mary who had more sense than romance could not understand and she said as much Eleanor, however, was firm, and made quite an eloquent speech to support her own view of the question. She could not condescend, she said, to ask such a favor on any other terms than those proposed. Mary might perhaps think her high-flown, but she had her own ideas, and she could not submit to sacrifice her self-respect. "'But I'm sure you love him, don't you?' pleaded Mary, "'and I'm sure he loves you better than anything in the world.' Eleanor was going to make another speech, but a tear came to each eye, and she could not. So she pretended to blow her nose and walked to the window, and made a little inward call on her own courage, and finding herself somewhat sustained, said sententiously, "'Mary, this is nonsense.' "'But you do love him,' said Mary, who had followed her friend to the window, and now spoke with her arms close wound round the other's waist." you do love him with all your heart you know you do i defy you to deny it i commenced eleanor turning sharply round to refute the charge but the intended falsehood stuck in her throat and never came to utterance she could not deny her love so she took plentifully to tears and leant upon her friend's bosom and sobbed there and protested that love or no love it would make no difference in her resolve and called Mary a thousand times the most cruel of girls, and swore her to secrecy by a hundred oaths, and ended by declaring that the girl who could betray her friend's love, even to a brother, would be as black a traitor as a soldier in a garrison who should open the city gates to the enemy. While they were yet discussing the matter, Bold returned, and Eleanor was forced into sudden action. She had either to accomplish or abandon her plan, and having slipped into her friend's bedroom as the gentleman closed the hall door, she washed the marks of tears from her eyes, and resolved within herself to go through with it. "'Tell him I'm here,' said she, and coming in, "'and mind whatever you do, don't leave us.' So Mary informed her brother, with a somewhat somber air, that Miss Harding was in the next room and was coming to speak to him. Eleanor was certainly thinking more of her father than of herself, as she arranged her hair before the glass and removed the traces of sorrow from her face, and yet I should be untrue if I said that she was not anxious to appear well before her lover. Why else was she so sedulous with that stubborn curl that would rebel against her hand, and smooth so eagerly her ruffled ribbons? Why else did she damp her eyes to dispel the redness, and bite her pretty lips to bring back the color? Of course she was anxious to look her best, for she was but a mortal angel after all. But had she been immortal, had she flitted back to the sitting-room on a cherub's wings, she could not have had a more faithful heart, or a truer wish to save her father at any cost to herself. John Bold had not met her since the day when she left him in dudgeon in the cathedral close. Since then his whole time had been occupied in promoting the cause against her father, and not unsuccessfully. He had often thought of her, and turned over in his mind a hundred schemes for showing her how disinterested was his love. He would write to her and beseech her not to allow the performance of a public duty to injure him in her estimation. 
he would write to mr harding explain all his views and boldly claim the warden's daughter urging that the untoward circumstances between them need be no bar to their ancient friendship or to a closer tie he would throw himself on his knees before his mistress he would wait and marry the daughter when the father has lost his home and his income he would give up the lawsuit and go to australia with her of course leaving the jupiter and mr finney to complete the case between them sometimes as he woke in the morning fevered and impatient he would blow out his brains and have done with all his cares but this idea was generally consequent on an imprudent supper enjoyed in company with tom towers how beautiful eleanor appeared to him as she slowly walked into the room not for nothing had all those little cares been taken though her sister the archdeacon's wife had spoken slightingly of her charms eleanor was very beautiful when seen aright hers was not of those impassive faces which have the beauty of a marble bust finely chiselled features perfect in every line true to the rules of symmetry as lovely to a stranger as to a friend unvarying unless in sickness or as age affects them she had no startling brilliancy of beauty no pearly whiteness no radiant carnation she had not the majestic contour that rivets attention demands instant wonder and then disappoints by the coldness of its charms you might pass eleanor harding in the street without notice but you could hardly pass an evening with her and not lose your heart she had never appeared more lovely to her lover than she did now her face was animated though it was serious and her full dark lustrous eyes shone with anxious energy her hand trembled as she took his and she could hardly pronounce his name when she addressed him bold wished with all his heart that the australian scheme was in the act of realization and that he and eleanor were away together never to hear further of the lawsuit he began to talk asked after her health said something about london being very stupid and more about barchester being very pleasant declared the weather to be very hot and then inquired after mr harding my father is not very well said eleanor john bold was very sorry so sorry he hoped it was nothing serious and put on the unmeaningly solemn face which people usually use on such occasions i especially want to speak to you about my father mr bold indeed i'm now here on purpose to do so papa is very unhappy very unhappy indeed about this affair of the hospital you would pity him mr bold if you could see how wretched it has made him oh miss harding indeed you would any one would pity him but a friend an old friend as you are indeed you would he's an altered man his cheerfulness is all gone and his sweet temper and his kind happy tone of voice you would hardly know him if you saw him mr bold he is so much altered and and if this goes on he will die here eleanor had recourse to her handkerchief and so also had her auditors but she plucked up her courage and went on with her tale he will break his heart and die i am sure mr bold it was not you who wrote those cruel things in the newspaper john bold eagerly protested that it was not but his heart smote him as to his intimate alliance with tom towers no i am sure it was not and papa has not for a moment thought so you would not be so cruel but it has nearly killed him 
papa cannot bear to think that people should so speak of him and that everybody should hear him so spoken of they have called him avaricious and dishonest and they say he is robbing the old men and taking the money of the hospital for nothing i have never said so miss harding i no continued eleanor interrupting him for she was now in the full flood-tide of her eloquence no i am sure you have not but others have said so and if this goes on if such things are written again it will kill papa oh mr bold if you only knew the state he is in now papa does not care much about money both her auditors brother and sister assented to this and declared on their own knowledge that no man lived less addicted to filthy lucre than the warden oh it's so kind of you to say so mary and if you too mr bold i couldn't bear that people should think unjustly of papa do you know he would give up the hospital altogether only he cannot the archdeacon says it would be cowardly and that he would be deserting his order and injuring the church whatever may happen papa will not do that he would leave the place to-morrow willingly and give up his house and the income and all if the archdeacon eleanor was going to say would let him but she stopped herself before she had compromised her father's dignity and giving a long sigh she added oh i do so wish he would no one who knows mr harding personally accuses him for a moment said bold it is he that has to bear the punishment it is he that suffers said eleanor and what for what has he done wrong how has he deserved this persecution he that never had an unkind thought in his life he that never said an unkind word and here she broke down and the violence of her sobs stopped her utterance bold for the fifth or sixth time declared that neither he nor any of his friends imputed any blame personally to mr harding then why should he be persecuted ejaculated eleanor through her tears forgetting in her eagerness that her intention had been to humble herself as a suppliant before john bold why should he be singled out for scorn and disgrace why should he be made so wretched oh mr bold and she turned towards him as though the kneeling scene were about to be commenced oh mr bold why did you begin all this you whom we all so so valued to speak the truth the reformer's punishment was certainly come upon him for his present plight was not enviable he had nothing for it but to excuse himself by platitudes about public duty which it is by no means worth while to repeat and to reiterate his eulogy on mr harding's character his position was certainly a cruel one had any gentleman called upon him on behalf of mr harding he could of course have declined to enter upon the subject but how could he do so with the beautiful girl with the daughter of the man whom he had injured with his own love in the meantime eleanor recollected herself and again summoned up her energies mr bold said she i have come here to implore you to abandon this proceeding he stood up from his seat and looked beyond measure distressed to implore you to abandon it to implore you to spare my father to spare either his life or his reason for one or the other will pay the forfeit if this goes on i know how much i'm asking and how little right i have to ask anything but i think you will listen to me as it is for my father oh mr bold pray 
pray do this for us pray do not drive to distraction a man who has loved you so well she did not absolutely kneel to him but she followed him as he moved from his chair and laid her soft hands imploringly upon his arm ah at any other time how exquisitely valuable would have been that touch but now he was distraught dumbfounded and unmanned what could he say to that sweet suppliant how explain to her that the matter now was probably beyond his control how tell her that he could not quell the storm which he had raised surely surely john you cannot refuse her said his sister i would give her my soul said he if it would serve her oh mr bold said eleanor do not speak so i ask nothing for myself and what i ask for my father it cannot harm you to grant i would give her my soul if it would serve her said bold still addressing his sister everything i have is hers if she will accept it my house my heart my all every hope of my breast is centred in her her smiles are sweeter to me than the sun and when i see her in sorrow as she now is every nerve in my body suffers no man can love better than i love her no 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 ejaculated eleanor there can be no talk of love between us will you protect my father from the evil you have brought upon him oh eleanor i will do anything let me tell you how i love you no 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 she almost screamed this is unmanly of you mr bold will you will you will you leave my father to die in peace in his quiet home and seizing him by his arm and hand she followed him across the room towards the door i will not leave you till you promise me i'll cling to you in the street i'll kneel to you before all the people you shall promise me this you shall promise me this you shall and she clung to him with fixed tenacity and reiterated her resolve with hysterical passion speak to her john answer her said mary bewildered by the unexpected vehemence of eleanor's manner you cannot have the cruelty to refuse her promise me promise me said eleanor say that my father is safe one word will do i know how true you are say one word and i will let you go she still held him and looked eagerly into his face with her hair dishevelled and her eyes all bloodshot she had no thought now of herself no care now for her appearance and yet he thought he had never seen her half so lovely he was amazed at the intensity of her beauty and could hardly believe that it was she whom he had dared to love promise me she said i will not leave you till you have promised me i will said he at length i i do all i can do i will do then may god almighty bless you forever and ever said eleanor and falling on her knees with her face in mary's lap she wept and sobbed like a child her strength had carried her through her allotted task, but now it was well-nigh exhausted. In a while she was partly recovered and got up to go, and would have gone, had not Bold made her understand that it was necessary for him to explain to her how far it was in his power to put an end to the proceedings which had been taken against Mr. Harding. Had he spoken on any other subject, she would have vanished, but on that she was bound to hear him and now the danger of her position commenced. While she had an active part to play, 
while she clung to him as a suppliant it was easy enough for her to reject his proffered love and cast from her his caressing words but now now that he had yielded and was thus talking to her calmly and kindly as to her father's welfare it was hard enough for her to do so then mary bold assisted her but now she was quite on her brother's side mary said but little but every word she did say gave some direct and deadly blow the first thing she did was to make room for her brother between herself and eleanor on the sofa as the sofa was full large for three eleanor could not resent this nor could she show suspicion by taking another seat but she felt it to be a most unkind proceeding and then mary would talk as though they three were joined in some close peculiar bond together as though they were in future always to wish together contrive together and act together and eleanor could not gainsay this she could not make another speech and say mr bold and i are strangers mary and are always to remain so he explained to her that though undoubtedly the proceeding against the hospital had commenced solely with himself many others were now interested in the matter some of whom were much more influential than himself that it was to him alone however that the lawyers looked for instruction as to their doings and more important still for the payment of their bills and he promised that he would at once give them notice that it was his intention to abandon the case. He thought, he said, that it was not probable that any active steps would be taken after he had seceded from the matter, though it was possible that some passing allusion might still be made to the hospital in the Daily Jupiter. He promised, however, that he would use his best influence to prevent any further personal allusion being made to Mr. Harding. He then suggested that he would on that afternoon ride over himself to Dr. Grantly and inform him of his altered intentions on the subject, and with this view he postponed his immediate return to London. This was all very pleasant, and Eleanor did enjoy a sort of triumph in the feeling that she had attained the object for which she had sought this interview. But still the part of Iphigenia was to be played out. The gods had heard her prayer, granted her request, and were they not to have their promised sacrifice? Eleanor was not a girl to defraud them willfully, so as soon as she decently could she got up for her bonnet. "'Are you going so soon?' said Bold, who half an hour since would have given a hundred pounds that he was in London and she still at Barchester. "'Oh, yes,' said she. "'I'm so much obliged to you. Papa will feel this to be so kind.' She did not quite appreciate all her father's feelings. "'Of course I must tell him, and I will say that you will see the archdeacon.' "'But may I not say one word for myself?' said Bold. "'I'll fetch you your bonnet, Eleanor,' said Mary, in the act of leaving the room. "'Mary, Mary!' said she, getting up and catching her by the dress. "'Don't go. I'll, I'll get my bonnet myself.' But Mary, the traitress, stood fast by the door and permitted no such retreat. Poor Iphigenia! and with a volley of impassioned love john bold poured forth the feelings of his heart swearing as men do some truths and many falsehoods and eleanor repeated with every shade of vehemence the no 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 which had had a short time since so much effect but now alas its strength was gone let her be never so vehement her vehemence was not respected all her no-no-no's were met with counter-asseverations, and at last were overpowered. The ground was cut from under her on every side. She was pressed to say whether her father would object, whether she herself had any aversion, 
aversion god help her poor girl the word nearly made her jump into his arms any other preference this she loudly disclaimed whether it was impossible that she should love him eleanor could not say that it was impossible and so at last all her defences demolished all her maiden barriers swept away she capitulated or rather marched out with the honours of war vanquished evidently palpably vanquished but still not reduced to the necessity of confessing it and so the altar on the shore of the modern aulis reeked with no sacrifice end of chapter eleven recording by jessica louise st paul minnesota chapter twelve of the warden this librivox recording is in the public domain the warden by anthony trollope chapter twelve mr bold's visit to plumstead whether or no the ill-natured prediction made by certain ladies in the beginning of the last chapter was or was not carried out to the letter i am not in a position to state eleanor however certainly did feel herself to have been baffled as she returned home with all her news to her father certainly she had been victorious certainly she had achieved her object certainly she was not unhappy and yet she did not feel herself triumphant everything would run smooth now eleanor was not at all addicted to the lydian school of romance she by no means objected to her lover because he came in at the door under the name of absolute instead of pulling her out of a window under the name of beverly and yet she felt that she had been imposed upon and could hardly think of mary bold with sisterly charity i did think i could have trusted mary she said to herself over and over again oh that she should have dared to keep me in the room when i tried to get out eleanor however felt that the game was up and that she had now nothing further to do but to add to the budget of news which was prepared for her father that john bold was her accepted lover we will however now leave her on her way and go with john bold to plumstead episcopi merely premising that eleanor on reaching home will not find things so smooth as she fondly expected two messengers had come one to her father and the other to the archdeacon and each of them much opposed to her quiet mode of solving all their difficulties the one in the shape of a number of the jupiter and the other in that of a further opinion from sir abraham haphazard john bold got on his horse and rode off to plumstead episcopi not briskly and with eager spur as men do ride when self-satisfied with their own intentions but slowly modestly thoughtfully and somewhat in dread of the coming interview now and again he would recur to the scene which was just over support himself by the remembrance of the silence that gives consent and exult as a happy lover but even this feeling was not without a shade of remorse had he not shown himself childishly weak thus to yield up the resolve of many hours of thought to the tears of a pretty girl how was he to meet his lawyer how was he to back out of a matter in which his name was already so publicly concerned what oh what was he to say to tom towers while meditating these painful things he reached the lodge leading up to the archdeacon's glebe and for the first time in his life found himself within the sacred precincts 
all the doctor's children were together on the slope of the lawn close to the road as bold rode up to the hall door they were there holding high debate on matters evidently of deep interest at plumstead episcopi and the voices of the boys had been heard before the lodge gate was closed florinda and grizel frightened at the sight of so well known an enemy to the family fled on the first appearance of the horsemen and ran in terror to their mother's arms not for them was it tender branches to resent injuries or as members of a church militant to put on armour against its enemies but the boys stood their ground like heroes and boldly demanded the business of the intruder do you want to see anybody here sir said henry with a defiant eye and a hostile tone which plainly said that at any rate no one there wanted to see the person so addressed and as he spoke he brandished aloft his garden water-pot holding it by the spout ready for the braining of any one henry said charles james slowly and with a certain dignity of diction mr bold of course would not have come without wanting to see some one if mr bold has a proper ground for wanting to see some person here of course he has a right to come but samuel stepped lightly up to the horse's head and offered his services oh mr bold said he papa i'm sure will be glad to see you i suppose you want to see papa shall i hold your horse for you oh what a very pretty horse and he turned his head and winked funnily at his brothers papa's heard such good news about the old hospital to-day we know you'll be glad to hear it because you're such a friend of grandpapa harding and so much in love with aunt nelly how do you do lads said bold dismounting i want to see your father if he's at home lads said henry turning on his heel and addressing himself to his brother but loud enough to be heard by bold lads indeed if we're lads what does he call himself charles james condescended to say nothing further but cocked his hat with much precision and left the visitor to the care of his youngest brother samuel stayed till the servant came chatting and patting the horse but as soon as bold had disappeared through the front door he stuck a switch under the animal's tail to make him kick if possible the church reformer soon found himself tete-a-tete with the archdeacon in that same room in that sanctum sanctorum of the rectory to which we have already been introduced as he entered he heard the click of a certain patent lock but it struck him with no surprise the worthy clergyman was no doubt hiding from eyes profane his last much-studied sermon for the archdeacon though he preached but seldom was famous for his sermons no room bold thought could have been more becoming for a dignitary of the church each wall was loaded with theology over each separate bookcase was printed in small gold letters the names of those great divines whose works were ranged beneath beginning from the early fathers in due chronological order there were to be found the precious labors of the chosen servants of the church down to the last prophet written in opposition to the consecration of dr hampton and raised above this were to be seen the busts of the greatest among the great chrysostom st augustine thomas a becket cardinal wolsey archbishop laud and dr philpotts every appliance that could make study pleasant and give ease to the overtoiled brain was there chairs made to relieve each limb and muscle reading desks and writing desks to suit every attitude lamps and candles mechanically contrived to throw their light on any favoured spot as the student might desire 
a shoal of newspapers to amuse the few leisure moments which might be stolen from the labors of the day and then from the window a view right through a bosky vista along which ran a broad green path from the rectory to the church at the end of which the tawny-tinted fine old tower was seen with all its variegated pinnacles and parapets few parish churches in england are in better repair or better worth keeping so than that at plumstead episcopi and yet it is built in a faulty style the body of the church is low so low that the nearly flat leaden roof would be visible from the churchyard were it not for the carved parapet with which it is surrounded it is cruciform though the transepts are irregular one being larger than the other and the tower is much too high in proportion to the church but the colour of the building is perfect it is that rich yellow-grey which one finds nowhere but in the south and west of england and which is so strong a characteristic of most of our old houses of tudor architecture the stonework also is beautiful the mullions of the windows and thick tracery of the gothic workmanship is as rich as fancy can desire and though in gazing on such a structure one knows by rule that the old priests who built it built it wrong one cannot bring oneself to wish that they should have made it other than it is when bold was ushered into the book-room he found its owner standing with his back to the empty fireplace ready to receive him and he could not but perceive that that expansive brow was elated with triumph and that those full heavy lips bore more prominently than usual an appearance of arrogant success well mr bold said he what can i do for you very happy i can assure you to do anything for such a friend of my father-in-law i hope you'll excuse my calling mr grantly certainly certainly said the archdeacon i can assure you no apology is necessary from mr bold only let me know what i can do for him dr grantly was standing himself and he did not ask bold to sit and therefore he had to tell his tale standing leaning on the table with his hat in his hand he did however manage to tell it and as the archdeacon never once interrupted him or even encouraged him by a single word he was not long in coming to the end of it and so mr bold i am to understand i believe that you are desirous of abandoning this attack upon mr harding oh dr grantly there's been no attack i can assure you well well we won't quarrel about words i should call it an attack most men would so call an endeavour to take away from a man every shilling of income that he has to live upon but it shan't be an attack if you don't like it you wish to abandon this this little game of backgammon you've begun to play i intend to put an end to the legal proceedings which i have commenced i understand said the archdeacon you've already had enough of it well i can't say that i'm surprised carrying on a losing lawsuit where one has nothing to gain but everything to pay is not pleasant bold turned very red in the face you misinterpret my motives said he but however that is of little consequence i did not come to trouble you with my motives but to tell you as a matter of fact good morning dr grantly one moment one moment said the other i don't exactly appreciate the taste which induced you to make any personal communication to me on the subject but i dare say i'm wrong i dare say your judgment is the better of the two but as you have done me the honour as you have 
as it were, forced me into a certain amount of conversation on a subject which had better, perhaps, been left to our lawyers, you will excuse me if I ask you to hear my reply to your communication. I'm in no hurry, Dr. Grantley. Well, I am, Mr. Bold. My time is not exactly leisure time, and therefore, if you please, we'll go to the point at once. You're going to abandon this lawsuit? And he paused for a reply. Yes, Dr. Grantley, I am. Having exposed a gentleman, who was one of your father's warmest friends, to all the ignominy and insolence which the press could heap upon his name, having somewhat ostentatiously declared that it was your duty, as a man of high public virtue, to protect those poor old fools whom you've humbugged there at the hospital, you now find that the game costs more than it's worth, and so you make up your mind to have done with it. A prudent resolution, Mr. Bold, but it is a pity you should have been so long in coming to it. Has it struck you that we may not now choose to give over, that we may find it necessary to punish the injury you have done to us? Are you aware, sir, that we have gone to enormous expense to resist this inquietous attempt of yours? Bold's face was now furiously red, and he nearly crushed his hat between his hands, but he said nothing. We have found it necessary to employ the best advice that money could procure. Are you aware, sir, what may be the probable cost of securing the services of the Attorney General? Not in the least, Dr. Grantly. I dare not say, sir. When you recklessly put this affair into the hands of your friend Mr. Finney, whose six and eight pences and thirteen and four pences may probably not amount to a large sum, you were indifferent as to the cost and suffering which such a proceeding might entail on others. But are you aware, sir, that these crushing costs must now come out of your own pocket? Any demand of such a nature which Mr. Harding's lawyer may have to make will doubtless be made to my lawyer. Mr. Harding's lawyer and my lawyer, did you come here merely to refer me to the lawyers? Upon my word, I think the honor of your visit might have been spared. And now, sir, I'll tell you what my opinion is. My opinion is that we shall not allow you to withdraw this matter from the courts. You can do as you please, Dr. Grantly. Good morning. Hear me out, sir, said the archdeacon. I have here in my hands the last opinion given in this matter by Sir Abraham Haphazard. I dare say you've already heard of this. I dare say it has had something to do with your visit here today. I know nothing whatever of Sir Abraham Haphazard or his opinion. Be that as it may, here it is. He declares most explicitly that under no phasis of the affair, whatever, have you a leg to stand upon, that Mr. Harding is as safe in his hospital as I am here in my rectory, that a more futile attempt to destroy a man was never made than this which you have made to ruin Mr. Harding. Here, and he slapped the paper on the table, I have this opinion from the very first lawyer in the land, and under these circumstances you expect me to make you a low bow for your kind offer to release Mr. Harding from the toils of your net? Sir, your net is not strong enough to hold him. 
sir your net has fallen to pieces and you knew that well enough before i told you and now sir i wish you good morning for i'm busy bold was now choking with passion he let the archdeacon run on because he knew not with what words to interrupt him but now that he'd been so defied and insulted he could not leave the room without some reply dr grantly he commenced i have nothing further to say or hear said the archdeacon i'll do myself the honour to order your horse and he rang the bell i came here dr grantly with the warmest kindest feelings oh of course you did nobody doubts it with the kindest feelings and they have been most grossly outraged by your treatment of course they have i have not chosen to see my father-in-law ruined what an outrage that has been to your feelings the time will come dr grantly when you will understand why i called upon you to-day no doubt no doubt is mr bold's horse there that's right open the front door good morning mr bold and the doctor stalked into his own drawing-room closing the door behind him and making it quite impossible that john bold should speak another word as he got on his horse which he was fain to do feeling like a dog turned out of a kitchen he was again greeted by little sammy good-bye mr bold i hope we may have the pleasure of seeing you again before long i'm sure papa will always be glad to see you that was certainly the bitterest moment in john bold's life not even the remembrance of his successful love could comfort him nay when he thought of eleanor he felt that it was that very love which had brought him to such a pass that he should have been so insulted and be unable to reply that he should have given up so much to the request of a girl and then have had his motives so misunderstood that he should have made so gross a mistake as this visit of his to the archdeacons he bit the top of his whip till he penetrated the horn of which it was made he struck the poor animal in his anger and then was doubly angry with himself at his futile passion he had been so completely checkmated so palpably overcome and what was he to do he could not continue his action after pledging himself to abandon it nor was there any revenge in that it was the very step to which his enemy had endeavoured to goad him he threw the reins to the servant who came to take his horse and rushed upstairs into his drawing-room where his sister mary was sitting if there be a devil said he a real devil here on earth it is dr grantly he vouchsafed her no further intelligence but again seizing his hat he rushed out and took his departure for london without another word to any one end of chapter twelve Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota. Chapter 13 of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 13. The Warden's Decision. The meeting between Eleanor and her father was not so stormy as that described in the last chapter but it was hardly more successful on her return from bold's house she found her father in a strange state he was not sorrowful and silent as he had been on that memorable day when his son-in-law lectured him as to all that he owed to his order 
nor was he in his usual quiet mood. When Eleanor reached the hospital, he was walking to and fro upon the lawn, and she soon saw that he was much excited. "'I am going to London, my dear,' he said as soon as he saw her. "'London? Papa!' "'Yes, my dear, to London. I will have this matter settled some way. There are some things, Eleanor, which I cannot bear.' "'Oh, Papa, what is it?' she said leading him by the arm into the house. I had such good news for you, and now you make me fear I'm too late. And then, before he could let her know what had caused this sudden resolve, or could point to the fatal paper which lay on the table, she told him that the lawsuit was over, that Bold had commissioned her to assure her father in his name that it would be abandoned, that there was no further cause for misery, that the whole matter might be looked on as though it had never been discussed. She did not tell him with what determined vehemence she had obtained this concession in his favor, nor did she mention the price she was to pay for it. The warden did not express himself peculiarly gratified at this intelligence, and Eleanor, though she had not worked for thanks, and was by no means disposed to magnify her own good offices, felt hurt at the manner in which her news was received. "'Mr. Bold can act as he thinks proper, my love,' said he. "'If Mr. Bold thinks he has been wrong, of course he will discontinue what he is doing. "'But that cannot change my purpose.' "'Oh, Papa!' she exclaimed, all but crying with vexation. "'I thought you would have been so happy. I thought all would have been right now.' "'Mr. Bold,' continued he, "'has set great people to work, so great that I—' Doubt they are now beyond his control. Read that, my dear. The warden, doubling up a number of the Jupiter, pointed to the peculiar article which she was to read. It was to the last of the three leaders, which are generally furnished daily for the support of the nation, that Mr. Harding directed her attention. It dealt some heavy blows on various clerical delinquents, on families who received their tens of thousands yearly for doing nothing, on men who, as the article stated, rolled in wealth which they had neither earned nor inherited, and which was in fact stolen from the poorer clergy. It named some sons of bishops, some grandsons of archbishops, men great in their way who had redeemed their disgrace in the eyes of many by the enormity of their plunder, and then, having disposed of these leviathans, it descended to Mr. Harding. We alluded some weeks since to an instance of similar injustice, though in a more humble scale, in which the warden of an almshouse at Barchester has become possessed of the income of the greater part of the whole institution. Why an almshouse should have a warden we cannot pretend to explain, nor can we say what special need twelve old men can have for the services of a separate clergyman, seeing that they have twelve reserved seats for themselves in Barchester Cathedral but be this as it may let the gentleman call himself warden or precentor or what he will let him be never so scrupulous in exacting religious duties from his twelve dependents or never so negligent as regards the services of the cathedral it appears palpably clear that he can be entitled to no portion of the revenue of the hospital excepting that which the founder set apart for him and it is equally clear that the founder did not intend that three-fifths of his charity should be so consumed. 
the case is certainly a paltry one after the tens of thousands with which we have been dealing for the warden's income is after all but a poor eight hundred a year eight hundred a year is not a magnificent preferment of itself and the warden may for anything we know be worth much more to the church but if so let the church pay him out of funds justly at its own disposal we allude to the question of the barchester almshouse at the present moment because we understand that a plea has been set up which will be peculiarly revolting to the minds of english churchmen an action has been taken against mr warden harding on behalf of the almsmen by a gentleman acting solely on public grounds and it is to be argued that mr harding takes nothing but what he received as a servant of the hospital and that he is not himself responsible for the amount of stipend given to him for his work such a plea would doubtless be fair if any one questioned the daily wages of a bricklayer employed on the building or the fee of the charwoman who cleans it but we cannot envy the feeling of a clergyman of the church of england who could allow such an argument to be put in his mouth if this plea be put forward we trust mr harding will be forced as a witness to state the nature of his employment the amount of work that he does the income which he receives and the source from whence he obtained his appointment we do not think he will receive much public sympathy to atone for the annoyance of such an examination as eleanor read the article her face flushed with indignation and when she had finished it she almost feared to look up at her father well my dear said he what do you think of that is it worth while to be a warden at that price oh papa dear papa mr bold can't unwrite that my dear mr bold can't say that that shan't be read by every clergyman at oxford nay by every gentleman in the land and then he walked up and down the room while eleanor in mute despair followed him with her eyes and i'll tell you what my dear he continued speaking now very calmly and in a forced manner very unlike himself mr bold can't dispute the truth of every word in that article you have just read nor can i eleanor stared at him as though she scarcely understood the words he was speaking nor can i eleanor that's the worst of all or would be so if there were no remedy i have thought much of all this since we were together last night and he came and sat beside her and put his arm around her waist as he had done then i have thought much of what the archdeacon has said and of what this paper says and i do believe i have no right to be here no right to be warden of the hospital papa no right to be warden with eight hundred a year no right to be warden with such a house as this no right to spend in luxury money that was intended for charity mr bold may do as he pleases about his suit but i hope he will not abandon it for my sake poor eleanor this was hard upon her was it for this she had made her great resolve for this that she had laid aside her quiet demeanour and taken upon her the rants of a tragedy heroine one may work and not for thanks but yet feel hurt at not receiving them and so it was with eleanor one may be disinterested in one's good actions and yet feel discontent that they are not recognized charity may be given with the left hand so privily that the right hand does not know it and yet the left hand may regret to feel that it has no immediate reward 
Eleanor had had no wish to burden her father with the weight of obligation, and yet she had looked forward to much delight from the knowledge that she had freed him from his sorrows. Now such hopes were entirely over. All that she had done was of no avail. She had humbled herself to bold in vain. The evil was utterly beyond her power to cure. She had thought also how gently she would whisper to her father all that her lover had said to her about herself, and how impossible she had found it to reject him. And then she had anticipated her father's kindly kiss and close embrace as he gave his sanction to her love. Alas, she could say nothing of this now. In speaking of Mr. Bold, her father put him aside, as one whose thoughts and sayings and acts could be of no moment. Gentle reader, did you ever feel yourself snubbed? Did you ever, when thinking much of your own importance, find yourself suddenly reduced to a non-entity? Such was Eleanor's feeling now. "'They shall not put forward this plea on my behalf,' continued the warden. "'Whatever may be the truth of the matter, that at any rate is not true. And the man who wrote that article is right in saying that such a plea is revolting to an honest mind.' I will go up to London, my dear, and see these lawyers myself, and if no better excuse can be made for me than that, I in the hospital will part. But the archdeacon, papa— I can't help it, my dear. There are some things which a man cannot bear. I cannot bear that. And he put his hand upon the newspaper. But will the archdeacon go with you? To tell the truth, Mr. Harding had made up his mind to steal a march upon the archdeacon. He was aware that he could take no steps without informing his dread son-in-law, but he had resolved that he would send out a note to Plumstead Episcopi detailing his plans, but that the messenger should not leave Barchester till he himself had started for London, so that he might be a day before the doctor, who he had no doubt would follow him. In that day, if he had any luck, he might arrange it all, he might explain to Sir Abraham that he, as warden, would have nothing further to do with the defense about to be set up. He might send in his official resignation to his friend the bishop, and so make public the whole transaction, that even the doctor would not be able to undo what he had done. He knew too well the doctor's strength and his own weakness to suppose he could do this if they both reached London together. Indeed, he would never be able to get to London if the doctor knew of his intended journey in time to prevent it. "'No, I think not,' said he. "'I think I shall start before the archdeacon could be ready. I shall go early tomorrow morning.' "'That will be best, Papa,' said Eleanor, showing that her father's ruse was appreciated. "'Why, yes, my love. The fact is I wish to do all this before the archdeacon can—' can interfere. There's a great deal of truth in all he says. He argues very well, and I can't always answer him. But there is an old saying, Nellie, everyone knows where his own shoe pinches. He'll say that I want moral courage, and strength of character, and power of endurance, and it's all true. But I'm sure I ought not to remain here, if I have nothing better to put forward than a quibble. So, Nellie, we shall have to leave this pretty place. Eleanor's face brightened up as she assured her father how cordially she agreed with him. True, my love, 
said he, now again quite happy and at ease in his manner. What good to us is this place, or all the money, if we are to be ill-spoken of? Oh, Papa, I'm so glad. My darling child, it did cost me a pang at first, Nelly, to think that you should lose your pretty drawing-room and your ponies and your garden. The garden will be the worst of all. But there is a garden at Crabtree, a very pretty garden. Crabtree Parvo was the name of the small living which Mr. Harding had held as a minor canon, and which still belonged to him. It was only worth some eighty pounds a year, and a small house and glebe, all of which were now handed over to Mr. Harding's curate, but it was to Crabtree Glebe that Mr. Harding thought of retiring. This parish must not be mistaken for that other living. Crabtree Canonicorum, as it is called. Crabtree Canonicorum is a very nice thing. There are only two hundred parishioners, there are four hundred acres of glebe, and the great and small tithes, which both go to the rector, are worth four hundred pounds a year more. Crabtree Canonicorum is the gift of the dean and chapter, and is at this time possessed by the Honourable and Reverend Dr. Vesey Stanhope, who also fills the prebendal stall of Goose Gorge in Barchester Chapter, and holds the united rectory of Eiderdown and Stogpingham, or Stoke Pinkwim, as it should be written. This is the same Dr. Fizzy Stanhope, whose hospitable villa on the Lake of Como is so well known to the elite of English travellers, and whose collection of Lombard butterflies is supposed to be unique. Yes, said the warden, musing, there's a very pretty garden at Crabtree, but I shall be sorry to disturb poor Smith. Smith was the curate of Crabtree, a gentleman who was maintaining a wife and half a dozen children on the income arising from his profession. Eleanor assured her father that as far as she was concerned, she could leave her house and her ponies without a single regret. She was only so happy that he was going, going where he would escape all this dreadful turmoil. But we will take the music, my dear. And so they went on planning their future happiness, and plotting how they would arrange it all without the interposition of the archdeacon. And at last they again became confidential, and then the warden did thank her for what she had done, and Eleanor, lying on her father's shoulder, did find an opportunity to tell her secret. And the father gave his blessing to his child, and said that the man whom she loved was honest, good, and kind-hearted, and right-thinking in the main one who wanted only a good wife to put him quite upright. "'A man, my love,' he ended by saying, "'to whom I firmly believe that I can trust my treasure with safety.' "'But what will Dr. Grantly say?' "'Well, my dear, it can't be helped. We shall be out at Crabtree, then.' And Eleanor ran upstairs to prepare her father's clothes for his journey, and the warden returned to his garden to make his last adieu to every tree and shrub and shady nook that he knew so well. End of chapter 13 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota Chapter 14 of The Warden This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE WARDEN BY ANTHONY TROLLOPE CHAPTER Fourteen, MOUNT OLYMPUS Wretched in spirit, 
groaning under the feeling of insult, self-condemning and ill-satisfied in every way, Bold returned to his London lodgings. Ill as he had fared in his interview with the archdeacon, he was not the less under the necessity of carrying out his pledge to Eleanor, and he went about his ungracious task with a heavy heart. The attorneys whom he had employed in London received his instructions with surprise and evident misgiving. However, they could only obey, and mutter something of their sorrow that such heavy costs should only fall upon their own employer, especially as nothing was wanting but perseverance to throw them on the opposite party. Bold left the office which he had latterly so much frequented, shaking the dust from off his feet, and before he was down the stairs an edict had already gone forth for the preparation of the bill. He next thought of the newspapers. The case had been taken up by more than one, and he was well aware that the keynote had been sounded by the Jupiter. He had been very intimate with Tom Towers, and had often discussed with him the affairs of the hospital. Bold could not say that the articles in that paper had been written at his own instigation. He did not even know as a fact that they had been written by his friend. Tom Towers had never said that such a view of the case or such a side in the dispute would be taken by the paper with which he was connected. Very discreet in such matters was Tom Towers, and altogether indisposed to talk loosely of the concerns of that mighty engine of which it was his high privilege to move in secret some portion. Nevertheless, Bold believed that to him were owing those dreadful words which had caused such panic at Barchester and he conceived himself bound to prevent their repetition. With this view he betook himself from the attorney's office to that laboratory where, with amazing chemistry, Tom Towers compounded thunderbolts for the destruction of all that is evil, and for the furtherance of all that is good, in this and other hemispheres. Who has not heard of Mount Olympus? that high abode of all the powers of type, that favoured seat of the great goddess Pica, that wondrous habitation of gods and devils, from whence with ceaseless hum of steam and never-ending flow of Castalian ink issue forth fifty thousand nightly edicts for the governance of a subject nation. Velvet and gilding do not make a throne, nor gold and jewels a sceptre, it is a throne because the most exalted one sits there, and a scepter because the most mighty one wields it. So it is with Mount Olympus. Should a stranger make his way thither at dull noonday, or during the sleepy hours of the silent afternoon, he would find no acknowledged temple of power and beauty, no fitting fane for the great thunderer, no proud facades and pillared roofs to support the dignity of this greatest of earthly potentates. To the outward and uninitiated eye, Mount Olympus is a somewhat humble spot, undistinguished, unadorned, nay, almost mean. It stands alone, as it were, in a mighty city, close to the densest throng of men, but partaking neither of the noise nor the crowd. A small, secluded, dreary spot, tenanted, one would say, by quite unambitious people at the easiest rents. Is this Mount Olympus? asks the unbelieving stranger is it from these small dark dingy buildings that those infallible laws proceed which cabinets are called upon to obey by which bishops are to be guided lords and commons controlled judges instructed in law 
generals in strategy, admirals in naval tactics, and orange women in the management of their barrows. Yes, my friend, from these walls, from here issue the only known infallible bulls for the guidance of British souls and bodies. This little court is the Vatican of England. Here reigns a pope, self-nominated, self-consecrated, I and much stranger, too, self-believing, a pope whom, if you cannot obey him, I would advise you to disobey as silently as possible, a pope hitherto afraid of no Luther, a pope who manages his own inquisition, who punishes unbelievers as no most skilful inquisitor of Spain ever dreamt of doing, one who can excommunicate thoroughly, fearfully, radically, put you beyond the pale of men's charity, make you odious to your dearest friends, and turn you into a monster to be pointed at by the finger. Oh, heavens, and this is Mount Olympus! It is a fact amazing to ordinary mortals that the Jupiter is never wrong. With what endless care, with what unsparing labor do we not strive to get together for our great national council the men most fitting to compose it? And how we fail! Parliament is always wrong. Look at the Jupiter, and see how futile are their meetings, how vain their council, how needless all their trouble. With what pride do we regard our chief ministers, the great servants of state, the oligarchs of the nation on whose wisdom we lean, to whom we look for guidance in our difficulties? But what are they to the writers of the Jupiter? They hold counsel together and with anxious thought painfully elaborate their country's good, but when all is done, the Jupiter declares that all is not. Why should we look to Lord John Russell? Why should we regard Palmerston and Gladstone when Tom Towers, without a struggle, can put us right? Look at our generals, what faults they make, at our admirals, how inactive they are. What money, honesty, and science can do is done, and yet how badly are our troops brought together, fed, conveyed, clothed, armed, and managed. The most excellent of our good men do their best to man our ships, with the assistance of all possible external appliances, but in vain. All, all is wrong. Alas, alas! Tom Towers, and he alone, knows all about it. Why, oh why, ye earthly ministers, why have ye not followed more closely this heaven-sent messenger that is among us? Were it not well for us in our ignorance that we confided all things to the Jupiter? Would it not be wise in us to abandon useless talking, idle thinking, and profitless labor? Away with majorities in the House of Commons, with verdicts from judicial bench given after much delay, with doubtful laws and the fallible attempts of humanity. Does not the Jupiter, coming forth daily with fifty thousand impressions full of unerring decision on every mortal subject, set all matters sufficiently at rest? Is not Tom Towers here, able to guide us, and willing? Yes, indeed, able and willing to guide all men in all things, so long as he is obeyed as autocrat should be obeyed, with undoubting submission. Only let not ungrateful ministers seek other colleagues than those whom Tom Towers may approve. Let church and state, law and physic, commerce and agriculture, the arts of war, and the arts of peace, all listen and obey, and all will be made perfect. Has not Tom Towers an all-seeing eye? From the diggings of Australia to those of California, 
right round the habitable globe does he not know watch and chronicle the doings of every one from a bishopric in new zealand to an unfortunate director of a northwest passage is he not the only fit judge of capability from the sewers of london to the central railway of india from the palaces of st petersburg to the cabins of connaught nothing can escape him britons have but to read to obey and be blessed none but the fools doubt the wisdom of the jupiter none but the mad dispute its facts no established religion has ever been without its unbelievers even in the country where it is the most firmly fixed no creed has been without scoffers no church has so prospered as to free itself entirely from dissent there are those who doubt the jupiter they live and breathe the upper air walking here unscathed though scorned men born of british mothers and nursed on english milk who scruple not to say that mount olympus has its price that tom towers can be bought for gold such is mount olympus the mouthpiece of all the wisdom of this great country it may probably be said that no place in this nineteenth century is more worthy of notice no treasure mandate armed with the signatures of all the government has half the power of one of those broadsheets which fly forth from hence so abundantly armed with no signature at all some great man some mighty peer will say a noble duke retires to rest feared and honoured by all his countrymen fearless himself if not a good man at any rate a mighty man too mighty to care much for what men may say about his want of virtue he rises in the morning degraded mean and miserable an object of men's scorn anxious only to retire as quickly as may be to some german obscurity some unseen italian privacy or indeed anywhere out of sight what has made this awful change what has so afflicted him an article has appeared in the jupiter some fifty lines of a narrow column have destroyed all his grace's equanimity and banished him for ever from the world no man knows who wrote the bitter words the clubs talk confusedly of the matter whispering to each other this and that name while tom towers walks quietly along pall mall with his coat buttoned close against the east wind as though he were a mortal man and not a god dispensing thunderbolts from mount olympus it was not to mount olympus that our friend bold betook himself he had before now wandered round that lonely spot thinking how grand a thing it was to write articles for the jupiter considering within himself whether by any stretch of the powers within him he could ever come to such distinction wondering how tom towers would take any little humble offering of his talents calculating that tom towers himself must have once had a beginning have once doubted as to his own success towers could not have been born a writer in the jupiter with such ideas half ambitious and half awestruck had bold regarded the silent-looking workshop of the gods but he had never yet by word or sign attempted to influence the slightest word of his unerring friend on such a course was he now intent and not without much inward palpitation did he betake himself to the quiet abode of wisdom where tom towers was to be found a mornings inhaling ambrosia and sipping nectar in the shape of toast and tea 
not far removed from mount olympus but somewhat nearer to the blessed regions of the west is the most favoured abode of temis washed by the rich tide which now passes from the towers of caesar to barry's halls of eloquence and again back with new offerings of a city's tribute from the palaces of peers to the mart of merchants stand those quiet walls which law has delighted to honour by its presence what a world within a world is the temple how quiet are its entangled walks as some one lately has called them and yet how close to the densest concourse of humanity how gravely respectable its sober alleys though removed but by a single step from the profanity of the strand and the low iniquity of fleet street old st dunstan with its bell-smiting bludgeoners has been removed the ancient shops with their faces full of pleasant history are passing away one by one the bar itself is to go its doom has been pronounced by the jupiter rumour tells us of some huge building that is to appear in these latitudes dedicated to law subversive of the courts of westminster and antagonistic to the rolls and lincoln's inn but nothing yet threatens the silent beauty of the temple it is the medieval court of the metropolis here on the choicest spot of this choice ground stands a lofty row of chambers looking obliquely upon the sullied thames before the windows the lawn of the temple gardens stretches with that dim yet delicious verdure so refreshing to the eyes of londoners if doomed to live within the thickest of london smoke you would surely say that that would be your chosen spot yes you you whom i now address my dear middle-aged bachelor friend can nowhere be so well domiciled as here no one here will ask whether you are out or at home alone or with friends here no sabbatarian will investigate your sundays no censorious landlady will scrutinize your empty bottle no valetudinarian neighbor will complain of late hours if you love books to what place are books so suitable the whole spot is redolent of topography would you worship the paphian goddess the groves of cyprus are not more taciturn than those of the temple wit and wine are always here and always together the revels of the temple are as those of polished greece where the wildest worshipper of bacchus never forgot the dignity of the god whom he adored where can retirement be so complete as here where can you be so sure of all the pleasures of society it was here that tom towers lived and cultivated with eminent success the tenth muse who now governs the periodical press but let it not be supposed that his chambers were such or so comfortless as are frequently the gaunt abodes of legal aspirants four chairs a half-filled deal bookcase with hangings of dingy green baize an old office table covered with dusty papers which are not moved once in six months and an older pembroke brother with rickety legs for all daily uses a dispatcher for the preparation of lobsters and coffee and an apparatus for the cooking of toast and mutton chops such utensils and luxuries as these did not suffice for the well-being of tom towers he indulged in four rooms on the first floor each of which was furnished if not with the splendour with probably more than the comfort of stafford house every addition that science and art have lately made to the luxuries of modern life was to be found there the room in which he usually sat was surrounded by bookshelves carefully filled nor was there a volume there which was not entitled to its place in such a collection 
both by its intrinsic worth and exterior splendor a pretty portable set of steps in one corner of the room showed that those even on the higher shelves were intended for use the chamber contained but two works of art the one an admirable bust of sir robert peel by power declared the individual politics of our friend and the other a singularly long figure of a female devotee by millet told equally plainly the school of art to which he was addicted this picture was not hung as pictures usually are against the wall there was no inch of wall vacant for such a purpose it had a stand or desk erected for its own accommodation and there on her pedestal framed and glazed stood the devotional lady looking intently at a lily as no lady ever looked before our modern artists whom we style pre-raphaelites have delighted to go back not only to the finish and peculiar manner but also to the subjects of the early painters it is impossible to give them too much praise for the elaborate perseverance with which they have equalled the minute perfections of the masters from whom they take their inspiration nothing probably can exceed the painting of some of these latter-day pictures it is however singular into what faults they fall as regards their subjects they are not quite content to take the old stock groups a sebastian with his arrows a lucia with her eyes in a dish a lorenzo with a gridiron or the virgin with two children but they are anything but happy in their change as a rule no figure should be drawn in a position which it is impossible to suppose any figure should maintain the patient endurance of saint sebastian the wild ecstasy of st john in the wilderness the maternal love of the virgin are feelings naturally portrayed by a fixed posture but the lady with the stiff back and bent neck who looks at her flower and is still looking from hour to hour gives us an idea of pain without grace and abstraction without a cause it was easy from his rooms to see that tom towers was a sybarite though by no means an idle one he was lingering over his last cup of tea surrounded by an ocean of newspapers through which he had been swimming when john bold's card was brought in by his tiger this tiger never knew that his master was at home though he often knew that he was not and thus tom towers was never invaded but by his own consent on this occasion after twisting the card twice in his fingers he signified to his attendant imp that he was visible and the inner door was unbolted and our friend announced i have before said that he of the jupiter and john bold were intimate there was no very great difference in their ages for towers was still considerably under forty and when bold had been attending the london hospitals towers who was not then the great man that he had since become had been much with him then they had often discussed together the objects of their ambition and future prospects then tom towers was struggling hard to maintain himself as a briefless barrister by shorthand reporting for any of the papers that would engage him then he had not dared to dream of writing leaders for the jupiter or canvassing the conduct of cabinet ministers things had altered since that time the briefless barrister was still briefless but now he despised briefs could he have been sure of a judge's seat he would hardly have left his present career it is true he wore no ermine bore no outward marks of a world's respect but with what a load of inward importance was he charged it is true his name appeared in no large capitals on no wall was chalked up tom towers forever 
freedom of the press and Tom Towers, but what member of Parliament had half his power? It is true that in far-off provinces men did not talk daily of Tom Towers, but they read the Jupiter, and acknowledged that without the Jupiter life was not worth having. This kind of hidden but still conscious glory suited the nature of the man. He loved to sit silent in a corner of his club, and listen to the loud chatterings of politicians, and to think how they all were in his power. How he could smite the loudest of them, were it worth his while to raise his pen for such a purpose. He loved to watch the great men of whom he daily wrote, and flatter himself that he was greater than any of them. Each of them was responsible to his country, each of them must answer if inquired into, each of them must endure abuse with good humor, and insolence without anger. But to whom was he, Tom Towers, responsible? No one could insult him, no one could inquire into him. He could speak out withering words, and no one could answer him. Ministers courted him, though perhaps they knew not his name. Bishops feared him, judges doubted their own verdicts unless he confirmed them, and generals in their councils of war did not consider more deeply what the enemy would do than what the Jupiter would say. Tom Towers never boasted of the Jupiter. He scarcely ever named the paper even to the most intimate of his friends. He did not even wish to be spoken of as connected with it, but he did not the less value his privileges, or think the less of his own importance. It is probable that Tom Towers considered himself the most powerful man in Europe, and so he walked on from day to day, studiously striving to look a man, but knowing within his breast that he was a god. End of chapter 14. Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.